The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jan Gero is a 90-year-old author, serial journaler and monologuist who's dedicated his life to documenting his experiences and sharing them with the world. Known as the compulsive New Yorker, Jan has spent the past 50 years chronicling his life through his books, written journals and video recordings. His passion for self-discovery has led him to create a vast collection of personal narratives that reflect his innermost thoughts and feelings. And Jan Jan joins us now over the phone. How are you today? I'm pretty well, thank you very much. I'm in New York City and uh, the weather is relatively calm and about 35 degrees Fahrenheit and there's a little snow snow flurries outside. Oh, nice. So you live in New York City, of course, but you're originally from Copenhagen and immigrated to the US on the heels of World War II. What was that experience like for you? Let me just clarify the word on the heels of World War II. I came after World War II. My parents came before World War II. They were Jews and they had to get out and they had to leave me behind because they had to travel via a very dangerous route through uh, Russia via the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And that was really not a good time to take a child with them. So after the war, when they had settled in New York, they sent for me and were able to bring me to America in 1946 when I was about 13 years old. What was that like to go to a completely different country? It was terrifying. I mean, I can't even remember it. If I was going to, you know, if I would have to characterize it, and I say terrifying, I, it's it's only because I imagined it. I really can't remember. It's completely blanked out. It was really just between me and my mom, the mom I hadn't had, that I had most of my youth, or up until age eight anyway. And she was, you know, in another life, in another world, in another language, and had another child. And it was my stepfather. And I don't know. It was, uh, I, would, I would have to say, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> So you've written many books, of course, and journals, and we'll get to them in a second. But firstly, what is it that inspires you to write and draw and learn new things? Because you're quite a creative person, aren't you? I'd like to think that. I wish the world would think that. I've written a lot of books, yes, it's true, but none of them have been published. I've self-published books. I mean, uh, you said you're going to get to the books uh, later, so I'm not going to enumerate them until you ask me. But um, (laughs) you you ask, what do I attribute my creativity to? Well, (laughs) 
I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put it this way. It's not, I know it's not politically correct these days, but I'm a Jew, or my mother's a Jew, and uh, so am I. And being a marginalized human, um, you know, either kills you or makes you stronger. And uh, in that sense, it has, I think, made me stronger. And in what way do you think it's made you stronger? What is it about being marginalized that maybe helps creativity? Yeah, right. No, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to define. It's very hard to define. In fact, I've been in psychotherapy for 20 years trying to figure out some of those answers. But the best I can come up with is that um, I'm uh, so angry with the world that I want to prove to it that I'm going to survive it. Does your work reflect that when you create things? Does it have a kind of political or social message sometimes that reflects the fact that you're from a marginalized group? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not really political. I'm not political. I mean, I am political. Yeah. I mean, I come from a socialist country originally, and uh, America is a far cry from a socialist country. And even if it was yeah. marginally socialist, they wouldn't want to admit it because it's uh, one of the world's sins in here in America. But anyway, you know, Medicare and Social Security and all of those things, including Obamacare, all socialist things. But anyway, uh, no, I'm so... Um, in, I'm into an internal voyage. What is my life like? And that's where my focus is, expressing what my inner life is. So you've been writing journals for your whole life, but specifically some of them for 60 years, as well as writing books. At what point do you think someone is able to consider themselves as a writer? That's another good question. I don't really, I don't really consider myself necessarily a writer <laughs> although i do i mean uh, <clears throat> i mean let me put it this way um i'm also a monologist and i also do my work yeah. as a videographer self as a videographer filmmaker with myself as the only subject and i also do audio journals which are by far my strongest expression although myself in text i mean i must have written 10 million words in um in my God knows, 40-odd books that cover from 1960 to 2010, when actually I stopped writing. I mean, I still keep it at what I call my journal now, but my journaling these days is through video and audio. So yeah. I've got 300-odd films of you know my standing in front of a camera and editing it to a result that's called The Compulsive New Yorker. Yeah. When you first started journaling, was it the intention for people to be able to see it? Or did it start out as a private thing? Yeah, it was a private thing. It was a private thing. Me and me, and the, me against the world. <laughs> <laughs> so now that it is public, do you worry about oversharing and people being able to read your intimate thoughts? Yes, yes. Yes, I. I mean, uh, now that I'm at the last stage of my, excuse me, last stage of my life, I, I have a last opportunity. Fortunately, I'm healthy enough to possibly last in a few more years. I am at. I, I gotta say, for the last 10, 20 years, I've been concerned about getting some public recognition for the work that I'm doing. And especially in this last period of my life, that in 10 days I'm going to be entering or the end of March, March 31, when I go through the door at March 90, I need to be seen and heard by the public. So actually, yeah. in April or sometime, I'm actually going to do 
what I call a black box theatrical work in which I'm going to present my videos or my films to compose in New Yorker, and I stand in front of an audience and face them and, and tell them about my thoughts and feelings about being at the end of my life. How do you balance sharing things in your journal without sharing too much? <laughs> without sharing too much. I, I don't think there's a limit. I mean, the only limit is in the sense, since I'm... Most of my adult life has been growing up in the 1950s. Um, I have a, an old um, mind mentality. And so when my daughters hear me say things like fuck and vagina and things like that, they shudder and they close their ears. So I, I do worry a little bit about those type of um, <laughs> old back um, mentalities. But otherwise, there's really nothing that I am not willing to share, whether it's, I mean, sexual things are really one of the more, everyone is a sexual human being. And, and so, I mean, that is one of my topics. But since I'm so old by now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny System, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny System with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, sexuality is barely a part of me now, and I'm without the romance for at least the last five years, and I'm barely able to have a sexual relationship. I don't believe I can, I can barely self-pleasure myself because, I, you know, I'm, I'm old. And, uh, medication also diminishes um, sexual uh, receptivity. 
So, and uh, another thing that usually encourages my sexual activity is marijuana. But for some reason, because of the intensity in which I'm trying to come out, so to speak, I've decided not to smoke for the last five months. And it's, uh, I mean, it's feeling very, very good. <laughs> I don't have the refuge. Of, hey, let me take a puff of this, you know, to ward off the universe. Yeah. Moving on, your first book is called Me on Me. How did that book come about? It actually has a companion book. It's Me on Me. It's one book. The other is called Me at More Me on Me. <laughs> so um, each of the books are actually um, what you might call um, reconstructions of journals into what might be five stories in each book. And they come from experiences in my life that have been, so to speak, slightly revamped to appear like stories rather than autobiographical writing. I mean, for example, the uh, trip to, De- to Denmark, a, um, a, uh, an imagined romance on an airplane trip, uh, actual romances that had driven me crazy or made me happy, or the death of my father, or, you know, events like that that I've been writing about and that I could fashion into a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. But um, I've self-published those two, that, those two books including a, a book that's called My Dreams and My Drawings, and I charged $3,000 for it. And I published them in 2011, published them. I mean, they've been available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble here in the U.S., and probably if it's Amazon worldwide, but I don't think, and they're both yeah. in an e-book version, and uh, I don't think I've seen more than five or six having been bought. So I'm just completely living in the closet as far as those books, and everything I've written is even more obscure than those. Yeah. How did writing a book compare to writing your journals? Because this is perhaps the first time that you've written something that was intended to be published from the very beginning. You know, every week I have a what's called a um, video blog and I write about a 2,000 word um, dissertation, I sometimes call it a rant, on one or another aspect of my life. And sculpting words, that, that is a, that's a very different thing from speaking spontaneously like I'm doing right now. And what I'm doing right now is really the, um, the manner in which I'm, so to speak, externalizing thoughts and feelings that I have that just come out in words that don't have to be then transferred into, oh, that's the word, and that's a sentence, and that's the grammar to express it. I mean, they're both two, di- two different ways of expressing oneself. I'm excited by writing. I'm excited by speaking, particularly, and speaking in front of a camera or to an audio recorder. Superb. And do you find that one kind of writing is more therapeutic than the other? (laughs) None of it is therapeutic. (laughs) It's an endless struggle to feel that I'm good enough to be, and worthy enough to be heard or to be read. It's never satisfying enough. It's, I mean, and so I'm actually living a pretty solitary life. So there's not enough people around to say, oh, well done, young man, or well done, old man. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, it, it's an endless uh, search for audience. Do you ever experience writer's block when you're writing books? 
well, I, I wish you would ask me that instead of when I'm standing in front of the camera or speaking to an audio recorder when I wake up in the morning. No, I never experienced speaking or, or externalizing through words. Um, never experienced a block. When I write, no, strangely enough, I don't. Um, I don't know why. Well, because I'm still speaking about my internal world. There's no problem. I have no agenda. Only what, what I've experienced and, so to speak, it can't be taken away from me. All I have to do is to access it. So I never really have any problem. Writer's block. I mean, the only thing I can imagine, at some point I'm going to get the point. I don't, we don't care about the word, what you're saying. You, you're just bullshit. It's just an endless uh, therapeutic um, a monologue, and we're sick of hearing it, so shut up. <laughs> if I had that feeling, I guess I, I would feel, get, I would get writer's block. Yeah. Now, your second book was called More Me on Me. Does the book continue where the last book left off, like an immediate no, sequel? No, no, no. Or is it in a different area? No, no. It, but just to clarify, Me on Me is one book. More Me on Me is a sister book. No, they don't have... Um, I didn't go back to um, to rework, not to rework, but to, so to speak, fashion uh, stories out of my experiences. No, because I developed such a strong voice all by itself that it became, it is different products, you know, a, a video rant and an audio rant. They, like a text rant, it's a separate product and that's where I'm living the most successfully, at least in terms of expressing myself for the last, uh, actually for the last 20 years. And what was the most challenging part of working on that book, More Me and Me? Jesus, that's a long time ago, you know, that was, <laughs> those books came out in 2011 and I as I said, they were um, reworked from uh, autobiographical written journals, you know, that I kept probably up until that point uh, handwritten and, well, transferred by a typewriter. They were not even digitized at that point. What was the most challenging part? Well, just to let out them, to remove the obsessive minutia of details about oh, I ate this at that time and I met that person at that corner and we turned that way and when I, when I look at her, she said this, that and the other. It just was a, I had details about the number, about numbers, how many miles did I run that day, how much did I eat and so forth and so on. So I tried to, I, I, I just tried to be, um, I don't know what the word is, reasonable about the obsessiveness of my detail and try to keep a, uh, a view of what the the main storyline is, me and my father, or me and this woman, or whatever. Do you have any other books or journals or projects on the way that you're thinking of releasing soon? <laughs> for me to release, I would have to pay for it. So I would have to pay for it. So the answer to that is no, no. I mean, I would love to find a publisher. Believe me, I mean, I'm I feel like Samuel Boyce. Do you remember him from the 17th century, London? <laughs> you know, he wrote a million words, and uh, it was called Samuel Pep's Diaries. They were meant they were meant for himself, and it took scholars for years to try to decipher his cryptic words because they were written in you know in a in a language that can't be read because he wanted to protect yeah. his wife and the other people in his um, administrative professions in London in the, I think it was 1660, 1665, or whatever. No, um, 
there's been a huge success since his death, and I'm afraid that my, most of my writing, which I'll, I'll enumerate it for you, but I had it, I had it, re- I had it formatted, and uh, what's it called? Um, in a um, a, a, um, a Jewish um, who usually publishes uh, Hebrew texts and near Columbia University for students who are. Prepared their last treatises, or we book binds. So I have I have twenty books book bound from 1983 to 2000, and I got from 20 2000 to 2010 eight books that have been book bound by a bookbinder. So they're standing here on my board. And hoping one day, while I'm still alive, that some publisher will understand what the hell I'm getting at and say, hey, here's an audience, here's potential audience. Well, in the meantime, where are we able to find the books that are available at the moment and keep up to date with you? The two books that I mentioned, Me on Me and More Me on Me, are available on Amazon in both ebook and uh, and an hard co- and a hard copy. It's soft soft cover book and um, I have a, a video I have a, a website let's put it that way that's called beyondgero.com that's j-a-n-g-e-r-o.com and that will give you a lot of information about who and what I do and I also have a video blog that I come I said I get the subscription is free to that and it's I can be reached at beyondgero at rcn.com but by email to be put on the subscription list, and every Friday you will get a communication from me, including links to my films that are on local public access broadcast stations and and links to actual films. Yes. Well, many thanks for talking to us today. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Toby. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.